in 300 meters. Take the left at the valley. Do it for humanism's sake. Hey Nancy, you ever heard the joke about the priest that walks by this child with a box and she's got a box full of kittens? No, I've never heard that and one. And he, he says, well, those are wonderful little kittens you got there. And the little girl replies, yes, those are Christian kittens. Oh, pretty impressive. So the priest goes on his way, comes back a week later with one of his compatriots. He says, oh, it's that little kid with the kittens. You're going to you're gonna love this. Take a look at this. So he walks up to her and says, you got a, your box of kittens again. And she says, yes, those are atheist kittens. Oh. And the priest says, what do you mean they're atheist kittens? A week ago they were Christian kittens. Mm -hmm. She says, yeah, but you know, this time their eyes are open. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up this morning Had a burning deep inside It's like when you're feeling It's all a big lie I feel the pain There's hunger and despair Stop the rhetoric of your teaching Time for us to share uh, welcome back to another very serious episode of Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin. I am your host. This is an episode, uh, a show, I should say, about positive atheism, skeptical thinking, and secular humanism. Joining me as usual is my partner in crime, Nancy. How are you, dear? I'm just wonderful. My eyes are open, so I must be an atheist. <laughs> we have our friend from Chillag the Reform, buddy. How are you doing? Good, good. And new, join the crew, Martina, for the first time. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? Good, good. And of course, our special guest today, Ian Bushville from the BC Humanist. Yay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Welcome, Ian. Thank you all. It's great to be here. Oh, what a week we had. What a week. Anybody's got news they want to share? <laughs> and that's great radio right there. That's great radio. Did, did you see the video of Justin Trudeau at uh, the World Economic Forum? I nobody to hear of he, it. Uh, it's the one where he stands up and says everyone should be proud to call themselves a feminist. Men, women. Yes. And he yes. talks about his kids. Uh, you know what? I'm, I must. I must admit, I did not vote for the Liberals during the last election, but I am absolutely impressed with our new prime minister. Uh, you know, I've, I've, it's quite natural for all of us to be a bit cynical about the prime ministers when they come in, and everybody says, "Oh, there's this love affair period," but I'm really impressed. Right now, he's keeping to his word, everything, and right away. What a great start. What a great start. Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe not everything. He did say 25,000 refugees, and that's suddenly become about 10. But well, he's trying, and know, that's what counts. I, I comp as compared to the last government, which would probably would have been, you know, we'll deport 10,000 people instead. At this point, we're, ready, <laughs> we're willing to forgive small mistakes. <laughs> he, he might as well bask in that Until while they it lasts. Add up. Yeah, exactly. And today we're going to do a show about the whole BC Humanist Association. But before we get into that, we'll get into our usual thing. Nancy, you ready to go? I'm ready. And it's this day in history, which, as I hope we know by now, is a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the days between January 11th to January 24th. So let's start with January 11th, which was International Thank You Day. Really, it, it exists. It's international. It's not, you know, primarily Canadian. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> And it's also notable as being the birthday of John McDonald, who was the first Prime Minister of Canada, talking about Prime Ministers. Uh, January the 12th is National Youth Day in India, and that's a day in 1967 
when Dr. James Bedford became the first person to be cryonically preserved with intent of future resuscitation, and his body is still being preserved in the frozen state today, which brings up a lot of the moral, ethical, and religious conversations about extending life, eternal life, manipulating death. It's a cool subject. Cool, cool subject. But what happened? Yeah. (laughs) And it's getting a little chillier as we go along. (laughs) Anyway, Dr. Dr. Bedford died of kidney cancer at 73, and he wanted to be frozen. And um, so chances are, if he didn't have that wish, no one ever would have heard of him. But he was the first person in human history to be cryonically preserved in the hopes that he would be revived sometime in the future. Is it accurate to say he died? It's, uh, well, so far, okay. you know, I guess as, you know, when, when his heart stopped and his brain was dead, I think we can say he successfully passed over to wherever it is he, you know, hopes he's going to go. So the interesting thing was that six weeks after, well, let me, let me back up a little bit. In the Star Trek episode, six weeks later, they actually used this as a plot that quick after Dr. Bedford's death. But um, in that episode of Star Trek, the uh, Enterprise found three people frozen in an orbital cryopod and uh, from the late 20th century, and they were in suspended animation. And that was the plot, and the, the name of that episode was Space Seed, if anybody wants to look it up and go back. If you want to get your geek on. That's <laughs> well, eventually, um, Dr. Bedford's remains wound up Uh, suspended in a tank of liquid nitrogen in a warehouse of cryopods. (laughs) I just have this awful, you know, visual of them hanging, you know, from the ceiling (laughs) with the numbers, you know, on, it's like hams hanging in the, I I know that's awful, but it's the visual that comes, comes to mind. (laughs) You know, now you know where my mind goes. Anyway, the warehouse is run by a group called Alcor Life Extension Foundation. And Dr. Bedford is there in that warehouse with 117 other patients. So to date, no one has ever been revived uh, from cryonic suspension. And in Dr. Bedford's case, they gave him an injection of DMSO, which is a preservative. So it's hard to tell, since that's not a proven method of preserving cells, whether or not if he ever became unthawed, whether his memory and uh, his ability to talk and, and interact would, would, ever, would ever be, um, you know, such that we could consider him, you know, fully engaged in, in life again. But it's interesting. It really is. And something, you know, maybe in a future show we can actually talk about cryonics. So uh, I have a question, Nancy. Sure. If by death, you your brain activity stops because that's the point of actual death. How do they do? They are they able to monitor brain activity, or how do they? Because res- if he's dead, he's dead. Like, brain- you mean, do you mean monitor it now? Yeah, like there must know, be some know, way of monitoring no, it. There's no brain activity whatsoever. No, they're just preserving the brain pathway. They're, right? But they're preserving it. So wouldn't the cells die? That's the question. Because DMSO has never been proven one way or the other, uh, you know, to either preserve it intact or whether it's going to deteriorate. But where, whenever they decide to revive him, all of your questions will be answered. Along with Walt Disney, which, by the way, is a myth. <laughs> That's a myth. It sounds like an episode of The Walking Dead. It does. <laughs> Moving on to January the 13th, 
This is such a cute story. I love it. In 1920, the New York Times had a column called Topics of the Time. Well, they they published uh, in under that topics um, a column that was called A Severe Strain on Credulity, which, this is 1920, they still used formal English. And the source of, of this was uh, Robert Goddard, who was the rocketry pioneer and the um, namesake of the Goddard Space Flight Center. So the, the author, the reporter that did the column was incredulous because Goddard had dared to propose, under the auspices of the Smithsonian Institution, mind you, that his multi-stage rockets might one day photograph the moon and travel to distant planets. And (laughs) so the Times editorial writers, I mean, they absolutely didn't buy it. And the the, uh, Professor Goddard, this is this is how they, um, my tongue is just getting, I feel like I've been cryonic, my tongue has been <laughs> Here's the last story I made fun and now it's coming back to bite me on the tongue. Anyway, the um, editorial writers said this about Dr. Goddard. They said that Professor Goddard, with his chair at Clark's College and the countenancing of the Smithsonian Institution, does not know the relation of action to reaction and of the need to have something better than a vacuum against which to enact. To say, that would, to say that would be absurd. Of course, he only seems to lack the knowledge ladled out daily in high schools. So it was a pretty damning report because they did, didn't think the rockets would ever get yeah. much further Rocket than technology. the Earth. They'll never work. Right. So, <laughs> so this is the New York Times, which is a very credible newspaper, always had. On July 17th in 1969, the day after the Apollo 11 launch, the New York Times decided they needed to have a correction <laughs> to the 1920 column. So here, here's what they, they put. It's so, I love this. Here's the correction. Further investigation and experimentation have confirmed the findings of Isaac Newton in the 17th century, (laughs) and it is now definitely established that a rocket can function in a vacuum as well as in an atmosphere. The Times regrets the error. (laughs) That's beautiful. Is that classy? Better late than never, but that's classy. Yeah, I'm sorry I screwed up the first part, but at least we got (laughs) got the, the, um, the apology right. Moving on to January 15th, um, Wikipedia, uh, which we all know is a uh, content encyclopedia, went online and immediately became the favorite reference for everything, whether or not the facts are true (laughs) or not, and many of us are dependent on Wikipedia, so happy birthday, Wikipedia. Um, January 15th was also Martin Luther King Day in the States. Um, January 18th... um, we need to celebrate the 18th because it was the beginning of something so iconically Canadian and so common that we hardly think about it at all. And it is, ta-da, the day that Canada Dry Ginger Ale <laughs> was patented by John J. McLaughlin. And anyone who want to guess when Canada Ginger Canada Dry Ginger Ale came into being? What year? What year? Yeah. Any 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 guess? 1903? Really close. Oh. 1905. 
Hey, good for you. I get points. I get points. Yeah, by the way, the original label had a beaver sitting on top of the map of Canada. That's how far back it goes. I think they still do, don't they? Yeah. Somebody bring I, out a I don't, I don't think it's a beaver. You wouldn't okay. believe how hard it is to find ginger ale in the UK. Oh, really? Yeah. They, they have, have Schweppes, they have though, what? They have rarely. Oh. So they have ginger beer, ginger which beer. is just this really, like, it's like drinking ginger. It just oh. bites your throat. And by that, you don't mean like people of red color. Though. You don't mean like people with red hair, right? You see, drinking no, no, no. ginger? Okay. Yeah, like the root. <laughs> it's not like soiling green now. No. Okay. Yeah. Well, specify that. Well, welcome back to Canada Dry Ginger Ale. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's good to have. January the 23rd. One of my favorite history stories occurred on January the 23rd because the story itself is the perfect confluence of reality and woo-woo. And you know, <laughs> we love reality and woo-woo when it all comes together so perfectly. So the story is in ni- 1897, a young lady named Elva Zona Heaster was found dead in Greenbrier County, West Virginia. And the resulting murder trial of her husband is perhaps the only case in U.S. history where the alleged testimony of a ghost helped secure a conviction. It's a great story because it has a wonderful cast of characters. It's a great um, location, which is the U.S. almost south. And, as I said, lots of woo-woo. So here's into the story. Elva Zona Heaster married a good-looking local blacksmith from Droop Mountain, West Virginia. (laughs) Ah, I love it. And his name was Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe. And they called him Trout for short. Of all the names, Trout looks like the one I would I would go for too for a nickname. Elvis appreciate about that. Yeah. (laughs) Elvis mother Mary. Um, was very wary of Shu. She just didn't like him, but uh, he was good-looking, and because Zona had had a child out of wedlock earlier, she figured this is the best she's going to do, so she decided she's going to have to live with it. But three months later, after the wedding, a neighbor discovered Elva's lifeless body and ran for the doctor. It took an hour for the doctor to come back to the house, but when he came back, Trout had laid her out on the bed and prepared her for burial with a veil covering her face and he was very flighty and very strange and he really wouldn't let the doctor examine her correctly and the doctor who probably didn't graduate at the head of his class found nothing amiss and with what he could see so he pronounced her the cause of death as a a cause that only women would have and that is an everlasting faint I would never remember a man ever having, a, you know, a diagnosis of everlasting faint. I think that but, those were caused by Elvis, weren't they? Elvis <laughs> Everlasting faint. Everlasting faint. So Mary Jane, the mother, was convinced the trout murdered her daughter, and she prayed for her daughter to come back for the dead and reveal the truth about her. She tossed and turned and had nightmares about about the death. And weeks later, she finally went to the local prosecutor, whose name was John Preston, and said that her daughter had appeared to her as a ghost and revealed the fact the trout had abused and strangled her. So the the, um, the prosecutor 
Preston may or may not have believed the story, but upon investigating Trout a little further, he found that Trout had been married twice before and that the second wife had been found dead under suspicious circumstances. So already we're getting into territory of uh, forensic. Um, what is that program? Does anybody watch Forensic Files where it has all of these strange? Or There's, a, there's another program now that has a, a detective and, and somebody that, that uh, is a seer of the dead. I, I forget what that is, but this is getting into into that territory in eight in the eighteen hundreds. Anyway, he decided that he was going to exhume the body, and he did. And according to the local paper, which was the Pocahontas Times, <laughs> there was ample evidence to convict Trout Shoe. So they went to trial, and the jury really thought that, that Mary Hester was credible, and they convicted they convicted Shoe. So Shoe, who now wanted to be called Edward instead of Trout, was convicted, sent to prison, and later died of measles. And a historical marker in Greenbrier County says, Greenbrier Ghost interred in nearby cemetery is Zona Heaster Shoe, only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. And that, dear listeners, brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasionally bizarre events and people that make up this day in history. Thank you, Nancy. Occasionally bizarre, you say? (laughs) Bizarre on a regular basis, I would think. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, and we'll be right back right after this. What is secular humanism? Critical thinking. Knowledge is freedom. Freedom from ignorance and its offspring, fear. The BC Humanist Association has been active in the Vancouver area for over 25 years. We offer a friendly and welcoming place to make new friends, as well as free educational lectures. We invite you to join us any Sunday at 10 a.m. in the Oak Ridge Senior Centre. Please visit our website for more details, bchumanist.ca. And we're back. So did that commercial uh, meet your approval there, that PSA? Oh, that was fantastic. <laughs> I just love that Green Bar Go story. I love that It's such a great story. When you started that story, I heard the word goat. So I was waiting for the goat to come in. I was like, there's a testimony of a goat coming. But then, then I got that it, you meant ghost. Ghost. And then I got the woo-woo. Uh, no, I'm going to have to improve my, I'm going to have to really improve my diction. I just need to hear better. Yeah. Fair enough. Hey, believe it or not, once in a while we actually get a letter. Oh. So we actually have. Yeah, we get a letter from a guy named Mike. He says, Dear LATV, love the show. Goes on, goes on. He says, Are you guys doing anything for Valentine's Day? Valentine's Day being around the corner. Now, I hadn't planned on doing anything special, but I was thinking of doing a uh, a quick little segment on romance scams. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, collective. so, Mike, uh, if you're listening... Uh, Tune in and uh, the next show, which is a show we're doing uh, with the interview of Jeff D. We'll do a little something about romance scam, which is actually quite a, it's a plague out there. So well, it's a... going to be Valentine's Day, a cautionary tale. Something like that. <laughs> well, you could go into, there's a lot of great data from websites like OkCupid that open up their database and oh. sort of look at who's looking for love. And even more interesting than that is 
Pornhub actually puts out some of their data on what people who well, maybe aren't kind of as romantically you, What kind involved. of a show do you think we have here? Their, their data is PG. <laughs> their data is PG-13. The rest of their website ain't. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> now, we're supposed to be doing a special Reformation report. Yes. Is that it? Yes, we are. Yep. You ready to go? Yep. I'm ready. Set you up with your music. I love my music. It's not my music, though. Okay, hello, and welcome back to another edition of the Reformation Report, brought to you by me, the Reformed, from the first church of new atheism in Chilliwack. Wow, it's so long since I've actually said that. I forgot what it was. I forgot what denomination I belonged to. Well, and you schismed, didn't you? I did. I totally did. You know, this show does that to people. <laughs> so this is a special Reformation report, simply because uh, tomorrow is a very special day for moi uh, and a whole lot of other kilt-wearing people out there. Tomorrow is the birthday of Robert Burns, who is the national poet of Scotland. So I wanted to kind of give a little bit of a history about, you know, why people go crazy on the 25th of January and men don kilts, not skirts, and uh, stab knives into innocent-looking puddins called haggises and uh, basically get pissed. Um, so anyway, here we go. <laughs> so Robert Burns is one of Scotland's most important literary figures and is best known for his famous and often humorous songs and poetry. Burns was an aspiring and passionate pioneer of his generation, and he's regarded as Scotland's national baird. Baird being a child, just for you. Oh, really? Yeah, a baird is so, a baird. A baird it's is not like, like a bard. It's a no. It's a baird. It's like a, well, it's, it's a baird is like a, a, a an artist, but it can also be a child as well. Okay. Or baron. Okay. More commonly known as Rabbi Burns, Burns was born to a poor family in Alloway in Ayr, which I grew up about twenty minutes away from. Nice. Uh, he was born on the 25th of January, 1759, and he began his work on the family farm. Burns's father recognized the importance of education and hired a local teacher for Robbie, who went on to demonstrate signs of exceptional writing and talent from a young age. As Burns grew older, his great passion for Scotland and his dynamic contemporary vision played an important role in inspiring the founders of socialism and liberalism. See, so it completely fits into the show. Yeah, totally. His literal, literally, literal, literary fame began when his first work, Poems Chiefly in the Scottish Dialect, later known as the Comarnic Edition, was published in 1786, after which his writing career flourished. Now, Robert only lived till the age of 37, oh. but he enjoyed an eventful life and produced an astonishing amount of great work. Uh, he's famous for his political views, his revolutionary behavior, and his infinite love for the lassies. That's another word for girls, not a dog. There's no bestiality there. It's just what? simply... Did Robert fall, fell down the wall? Uh, the well? <laughs> it wasn't from Aberdeen. He wasn't keen on sheep. <laughs> anyway. Oh, God. The comments of a uh, friend of reform are not necessarily those of Method Valley subsidiaries. And... I'm not on the radio yet. Anyway, so Burns was also inspired by the beauty of Scotland, particularly the breathtaking scenery of Ayrshire, his birthplace, and the romantic setting of his later home region of Dumfries and Galloway. So although more than 20 although more than 200 years have passed since his death, he remains one of the most celebrated figures in Scottish history and culture. 
Hence, the Burn Supper celebrations are held all over the world on either the weekend closest to January 5th or on January 25th itself. Now, question for the group. What famous Robbie Burns song or poem do we sing once a year? Everybody does. Is that Old Lang Syne? It is, yes. And do you know the... All right. Point for Ian. We're tied now. Right. Now, can you actually <laughs> sing the chorus? No, I can't. Okay. Uh, half a point. Uh, <laughs> and what about what about another famous poem of Robbie Burns's? It's a poem about the devil himself. Oh, is it the... No, the, not the devil came to Georgia, is it? No, no, no. no. I think that was... I, yeah, that's I, an American thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's more George Jones. Shall I, shall I give you a wee taste of, of, of Tam O'Shanter, which is one of Robbie Burns' famous poems? In my worst Scottish dialect? By all means. Okay, let's go we, here. We all go for culture here. I think the music's going to end in a minute. Uh, it's got 35 seconds left. Okay. I'll wait till it's done, and then I'll actually start, because it doesn't really... Okay, so <laughs> one, of, one of Robbie Burns' most famous poems is Tam O'Shanter, and it's the story of a guy who basically gets drunk all the time, and doesn't heed his wife's advice not to drink and then try and get home at night time, especially in the winter. So on his way home one night, drunk after drinking, he stumbles across what's called the Old Kirk, which is the old church in a place called Alloway. And while he's there, he sees lights and hears music and he goes over. And there's witches and warlocks and they're all dancing around and there's the devil in the corner playing the bagpipes because bagpipes are actually outlawed by the church. Uh, they were considered to be considered to be the devil's instrument, and yeah, and he got so enamored by this whole process, and then he spotted a a young lady witch, obviously didn't know her name, but she was dancing around in her basically her nightdress, which is called a sark, and uh, so anyway, he got so enamored by it, he yelled out, "Well done, Kathy Sark," and the whole place went dead quiet, and the witches and warlocks all flew out the kirk or the church and chased him, so he jumped on his horse and he flew across, and he knew he had to get across the bridge. Because witches can't go across moving water, did you know? And right as he was going across the bridge, Kati Sark, the girl that he was all enamored by, reached out and grabbed his horse's tail and ripped the horse's tail off and was left standing on the other side of the bridge shaking the the horse's tail and Tam made it home and his wife probably beat him senseless. So anyway, (laughs) here is a a wee clip from Tam O'Shanter. When Chapman Billies leave the street and Druthy neighbors neighbors meet, as market days are rearing late and folk begin to tack the gate, while we sit boozing at the nappy, getting food and unca happy, we think na and the lang scats miles, the mosses, waters, slaps and styles that lie between us and our hame, where sits our sulky, sullen dame, gathering her brews like gathering a storm, nursing her wrath to keep it warm. Ah, uh, this truth fond, honest Tam O'Shanter, as he for air at night did canter. Old air, a wamat near tune surpasses for honest men and bonny lasses. Wow. I love it. Thanks. There you go. Oh, so good. Good poem. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So, you, so that's she, a treat. She's still holding on to that tail. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Every year, the, you know, they get together in the old kirk. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much for that. Oh goodness. All right, moving on. We have. I got a great story in our segment that everybody loves another brilliant moment brought to you by religion and I certainly want your opinion on this especially you Martina since you've been like incredibly loud so far I know ah the wacky world of religion well the mummified remains of televangelist Pat Robertson were temporarily thawed out this week 
and paraded once again to brainwash the sheeps of the 700 Club. Pat Robertson fielded a question from a teenage viewer who wanted to know if it's a sin to listen to rock music. Yes. <laughs> the televangelist said that while people shouldn't try to completely avoid mainstream music, they should be wary of listening to songs that may contain violent, satanic lyric and beats that could summon demonic beings. It depends on what rock you're listening to. <laughs> Some of the stuff is just evil, he said. Nickelback. <laughs> no, that's offensive. Oh, right, right, sorry. Well, he obviously never listened to Christian rock because that's how much better. <laughs> Striper. They used to talk about killing your parents. There were oaths to Satan. You don't want that stuff coming in your mind. In one Indian context, they were playing rock music, and what the person said, one Indian context, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> and one person apparently said, Why are you calling out the demons? Because that was the kind of music they used to summon demons. Summoning demons, yeah, in 2016. I know, it's amazing, isn't it? And it's true. Just look at what happened to David Bowie. Bowie, he continued. I mean, here you have a person who everybody's referring to as a legendary musician, an innovator, somebody who changed the course of pop music history. In reality, Bowie was a deeply tormented and gay drug addict. And it showed through this, his music and on his face. I mean, just take a look at the, any picture of him and tell, him that, tell me that's not true, he says. Tell me he doesn't look like that after finishing having a gay orgy, complete with a ton of drugs. <sighs> well, you know, I don't know about you guys, but... <laughs> I'd be exhausted if I had a gay orgy with full of drugs. I wouldn't be looking as healthy as David Bowie did. Yeah, well, you know... <laughs> Y'all sweaty, really. We can say the demons have actually good taste in music, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, God. Um, you know what? I could go on. I, I don't even want to go on with this. It's just so ridiculous. You guys have any thought on this? Miley Cyrus. <laughs> I give up. <laughs> so, is the path to stardom through gay or- orgies? Like, is that what it takes to become famous these days? No, but we all know that all the best bands are affiliated with Satan. Okay. I mean, Jesus, what kind of what kind of rocker is he? No, come on. He looks like a. <laughs> Although there was a while there, Eric Clapton kind of looked like him. <laughs> what, what What about Rita McNeil? Oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> She died a horrible, painful death. Does that mean that she was... Never mind. I don't know. You'd have to ask Pat Robertson and his motherfucking remains for that. I, you know, but it's just amazing that in 2016 we're talking about demons, summoning demons with rock and roll music. I mean, really? Well, yeah, because that's part of his alternate reality. You know, that he, he, he's, he's living where, you know, he's surrounded by those kinds of thoughts and ideas. I just can't understand in 2016 why people still take him seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, he's more of an entertainment value than David Bowie, if you want. I mean, he's he just, there's nothing credible that's no. there whatsoever. What, what's getting me is this idea that it's rock music that they're using to summon demons. So what happened, be- how did they do it before rock music? Like, did they have different music that summoned demons in the Middle Ages? Or did they have rock music then? And why don't we know about that? No, I think they. Yeah. I think it's whatever. No, I think it's whatever music is current at the time. Whatever's you know, popular. Whatever's popular at the time that pulls people away from the church. That's the one that that has whatever, the demons associated. Whatever he with. can say is popular gets him some press, and then he gets in the press going, "Oh, it's clearly pop stuff is demon making." But <laughs> attention to me, I guarantee you, he listens to Wagner. <laughs> and Wagner, if you look at the life of Wagner, Martina, would you like yes. to jump in? Uh, Wagner's life was like, woo, you're talking about gay orgies. So 
all I have to say. And Martina, am I, am I to take here? You somehow know the, about this? Uh, my my mind just blew. <laughs> <laughs> like seriously? Oh, oh, thank you so much, panel, for your exchange on that. <laughs> all right, sir. The BC humanist. All right. We're, the floor is yours. Take it wherever you want. I want to know everything about the BC humanist. Our audience wants to know where, how it came to be, what's the mission, who are you, and why are you here in my house? Yes, and are you demon-possessed? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, thank you very much, Kevin, Nancy, and our full panel. You can't remember our names. No. <laughs> the reform today, apparently, and Martina. There's so much I could talk about. What I really want to do today, I think, is just have a discussion about the kind of issues that we're taking on and the kind of work we're doing and what we really need to be doing here in the Valley, where, which is really BC's Bible Belt. This is where religion really has the f- forefront power. It's Canada's Bible Belt. Abbotsford is actually per capita the, the most religious uh, town in the country. So I grew up in southern Alberta. Which That's not your fault. No, 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 it's not. <laughs> uh, but I didn't realize how religious it was. Like, I grew up in a very secular family, and it was only when my friends couldn't come over on Sunday mornings I started to wonder about that. But we could talk about my story later. Oh, we will. Cool. So, the BC Humanist Association's been around since 1984. I haven't been around since 1984. You've actually missed my birthday in your list of announcements. I was Aww. born on the 16th, and I just turned 30. Oh, so. I'm sorry. So I'm not trying to guilt birthday. you out of that. Yeah, happy birthday, happy dude. Birthday. That just turned into a like guilt trip. I'm sorry for that. Uh, so it's a good thing I gave you a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Don't feel so bad now. <laughs> so for, about, for most of that time, we've had a sort of core social aspect to our group where we try to just represent a community for atheists, for the non-religious, for humanists in Vancouver and across the province and often it's more in Vancouver and we're really trying to work on that and that's why I'm glad to be here talking to you guys. We are affiliated with the Fraser Valley Atheist Skeptics and Humanists and we love that you guys are still meeting up here and having a great meeting. I was out there this morning. It's great to see so many interesting interesting and interested people. <laughs> we, we, we are an interesting group. Yeah, <laughs> we'll stop it there. Yeah. <laughs> so the BC Humanists uh, became a registered charity after a few years with sort of five core purposes. One is to just promote secular humanism, so just talk about it and promote it and tell other people what we believe and what humanists think. The other is to just help educate humanists and provide real sort of the educational needs. So we do that through our meetings and our lectures and our uh, book clubs. We also try to provide fellowship and service, so we do lots of things that are just social aspects. We also do a lot more charitable giving and a lot more, we're trying to organize more charitable actions. Last year, one of the things I launched was, I called it the Humanist Action Campaign, where we're really trying to get people to come forward with ideas about how they want to get involved in uh, charitable works, whether that's a blood drive or fundraising for a charity, but want to do it under the banner of humanism, because you always hear this, oh, well... If you're atheist, you're not real charitable, which is not true. Uh, because, but one of the problems is we don't have the strength in our community as churches do. Like churches give a lot to charity because they meet every week and they know people getting involved. So if we can do that as a banner under the banner of humanism, we can actually do a lot more. One of the things we've actually launched in that sort of provide fellowship and do more service is we're going to be bringing in a refugee family, and we'll talk about that. I'm mm-hmm. sure. Because that's a huge project that's just kind of come about in the last month and a half that I'm really excited about. Should we start with maybe the definition of humanism? Because whenever I 
have people tell me what humanism is, I usually get... You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. So what is humanism? For those of us that might not understand what it is. Humanism is something that people can write books and books about but still not get to the core of. For me, it's just the idea of being good. So having reason, compassion, and hope in your life. So basing your worldview not on the supernatural, not on magic, but on the idea that we should treat each other with respect and try to make the world a little less bad. So I use science to try to figure out how the world works. I use compassion and empathy to try to decide how I should deal or treat other people. And I use art and hope to really inspire me to try to make that world less bad and better. So even so, so what you call humanism, a Christian would call being Christian, essentially. Except without so, the God aspect, right? You know, you're doing good unto others. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the golden rule is sort of in all philosophies. What's nice about humanism is it's not, it's not dogmatic. So we can adapt. And if we suddenly realize, oh, this actually isn't ethical anymore, or we realize what we were doing is wrong, we can change. And we can start reforming our actions and change in yeah. light of evidence. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. And 1984 was when the BC Humanist started. Yeah. So humanism as a concept has been around for a long time. The sort of first humanists were the Italian, I believe, how do I say? I guess it depends how you define it. So you can go back to the ancient Greeks and you can have people uh, like Epicurus who talked about a secular morality and they talked about atomism and they talked about sort of materialism. And then you have a bit later, you have the sort of idea of Renaissance humanism, where they take human beings off a pedestal and, like Leonardo da Vinci, start doing anatomy drawings and start looking at, can we study the human body and not treat it as this sacred act of worship? Mm -hmm. But it's really evolved beyond that. Through the Enlightenment, we had a lot of philosophy and a lot of Scottish philosophy, I'll throw, give a throw out there, that really brought about the idea that we can analyze the human condition critically and skeptically and not rely on supernatural explanations. Excellent. So what do what you guys jump in if you have any questions to ask Ian, right? I don't want to be the only one monopolizing the, the whole conversation here. Um, so what, what are BC humanists doing today? What are you guys involved with? What are well, your campaigns, I guess? As I was saying, we have the sort of core community aspect. We hold our weekly meetings in Vancouver, as, you, as we say in the PSA at Oak Ridge Senior Center. Mm -hmm. uh, we have book clubs. We have lots of social events that we're going on. But we're also trying to advocate for humanism. That's the other sort of core parts of our mission is to speak publicly on humanism. So here in Abbotsford, what's probably most interesting is we're going to be challenging the school district here who still give out Gideon Bibles to grade fives every year. So our position there is the public school district isn't the place for religious proselytizing. It might be a place to discuss religion in a sort of comparative, what do, we, what do different people believe, but it's not a place for advertising your faith or to try to get new recruits. Yeah. I mean, this is our public school system. Have you ever dealt with the Abbotsford school system? Not too much. No, they're, they're interesting. Yeah, they, they've been giving out the Bible for 
quite a long time, and they, they almost feel, <clears throat> if I can, I hate to speak on behalf of the whole community, but the general feeling is that they're entitled to because they've always done it, because they feel good about it, because they feel they're giving their children a little extra boost for those homes that may not you know, uh, be as religious as some of the other groups. So there's a really good feeling about it, and we've talked about it here for a long time, but for BC Humanists um, and, and for you to take it on as a campaign, I think, you know, you're going to bring everything to the campaign that that we need in order to be successful. So we're just thrilled to have you have you kick it off this year. Thanks, Nancy. And this really follows work we did a few years ago right next door in Chilliwack, where one of the parents came forward and said, look, I don't want my child being proselytized in school systems this isn't fair and they brought up the complaint and we backed this parent up at the school board because the policy there was explicitly we will distribute Gideon Bibles to every grade five whereas the policy in Abbotsford is there will be distribution of materials that the superintendent can decide upon maybe maybe we should um, maybe for the audience benefit here because um, you three well not you of course Ian but you two are from Chilliwack so would you be so kind, maybe give us uh, a brief overlay of that whole story of what happened in Chilliwack there, if you guys can? Uh, well, basically... I the, haven't followed through. My, my understanding is exactly what what um, Ian said, I mean, about the... Uh, sorry, I turned away from the mic. Uh, about the, the one parent who did challenge the school district uh, about the distribution of the Gideon Bibles. What I think is interesting is that when, when the Chilliwack School District did change their policy... They worded it very much the same as what the Abbotsford School District now have. So when they worded it, they said, well, you know, we will make the distribution of material available upon the approval of the superintendent. So if you have a superintendent who is in favor of Christianity or they themselves are part of uh, a church, you know, they are going to favor that over, that's the concerns, they will favor Christian material over other religious uh, material. And um, I think it was kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card for them. So it, there was a, in my opinion, from coming from Chilliwack, there was a, it was a victory in the sense that they acknowledged that, well, you know, we, maybe we need to move you know, away from being so explicit. But at the same time, they managed to do a catch-all where they could still get away with it. So maybe still a little bit more work to be done, but I think Abbotsford is definitely a better battleground at this point in time. Well, my sense when I spoke at the school board... <laughs> my sense when I spoke at the school board in Chilliwack was they saw this sort of generic distribution of materials policy as a way to sort of diffuse the situation but still privilege Gideon Bibles. Yeah. But the follow-up to that was CFI Canada actually moved in and said, all right, well, if you'll allow the distribution of any material, how about we distribute this book about evolution to students? And then the superintendent sort of went, well, maybe we'll just not do the Bible anymore. And so it stopped. And it's, the policy is still on the books, and it could restart, so we need to keep our eye on it, mm. and we need to be vigilant. Yep. But I definitely think the focus has moved now here to Abbotsford, where at that time I wrote to the Abbotsford School District and said, well, you have that policy too. Should, you should repeal it. And they went, no, we don't think we will. <laughs> yeah, I remember that because I remember being interviewed by one of the uh, Chilliwack newspapers uh, exactly when they were trying to bring that uh, magic of reality from Richard Dawkins into the school in response to those Gideon Bibles. And, of course, I wrote to the uh, 
the chair of the board and all that, and they never bothered to answer me. They told me, oh, they would, but they never did. So, Well, I think in Langley that strategy several years ago was, was successful. I think there was an individual. That was, I, I don't believe the individual was connected with uh, with our group or any any organized group that I can think of, but he also objected to the Bible being given out and uh, wanted something else. And, and when he pushed it and said, you know, if you're giving out the Bible, then I want to distribute whatever material he would. The, the school board said, no, you know, if we if we have to give out everything, we'll just give out nothing. And so they, you know, put their face in a in a prune-shaped pattern, and, and uh, but they yeah. did stop doing the Bible. Well, so. and that distinction between giving everything and giving nothing, I think, is sort of false. It's the idea that, oh, well, if it's an open policy, it's fair. But the fact is, most religious groups aren't actually proselytizing. There are only certain sects of Christianity that are really active about it, and there are only some sects that can afford to. Atheists don't tend to proselytize. Sikhs don't. There are lots of religions that don't proselytize. So setting up this kind of system favors some religions over the others. And that's why I want to see it ended. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are people that feel as though that's a fair system to allow everybody in, but it really isn't because it still goes over the line between religion and uh, uh, state secularism and, and religion. I find it interesting that uh, the system, you know, um, when they decide to allow everybody in, then it becomes an economic argument. Because all of a sudden, it's cost them a lot of money to let everybody in, right? Because they have to make sure that everybody's on the same grounds. Uh, but with that same token, I find that when you talk to uh, Christians in particular, I mean, I was even having this conversation with my own parents, they feel under attack. They feel like they're under attack for not being able to distribute these things, which they don't seem to, they don't realize, I had to explain to them, we're not attacking Christianity. This is in. It, this is for equality. The government needs to remain neutral and secular in these issues, because right now Christianity's on top. But let's say two hundred years from now, and I use the same argument with them. Let's say, let's say, let's say Islam got really big, and all of a sudden a majority of Canadians were Muslims. You know, they're reproducing more than everybody else apparently. So, I mean, how do you feel about your great great grandchildren having to learn the Quran? And that, for half a second, kind of jolted her in, into thinking, oh, well, you know, when you put it that way. It's that sort of concept of privilege. Anyone who is in a good position in society yes. sees any sort of challenge to that power as an attack on their personhood. Like, I'm a white man, so if someone says, oh, you, you know, men this, men that, I, you know, natu- instinctively want to take that personally. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not like that. I'm, I try to be better. I try to be a good feminist. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you have to take that step back and think critically about, is society set up in a fair way for everyone? Like, if I was you, or, you know, if I was someone else, would this work for me? Yes. P- people have a tendency to complain about um, minorities. You can simply ask them the question, why do you complain about minorities? Do you think minorities are treated unfairly in Canada? And, you know, that usually ha- stops them for half a second and say, well, no, they're not, then... Why are you afraid of becoming a minority or something like that, right? You shouldn't be. Well, let's come back to the Abbotsford School District. So this, as I said, it's a generic distribution of materials policy. And I mostly talk about the Gideon Bible because that's the most obvious example. But it's not actually, that's not the only religious tract going out. It's the most famous and the biggest. But there are also a few local, I believe it's something called Athletes in Action, 
generally puts out flyers to students. And that sounds very secular. And if you look at its flyers, it's like a basketball camp or something like that. But at every one of their camps, they lock their students in, sit down a little circle and pray about Jesus. Really? Yeah. And so there's some of that. Uh, Earlier last year, I actually submitted uh, freedom of information requests to both the Abbotsford and Chilliwack district to find out what kind of things are being distributed. And I restricted it to religious type things. And there are a few in both. There's fewer in Chilliwack now. But the big thing, so there's some of these athletes in action type flyers. There was a couple like parenting advice committees that were set up by churches and a few other programs that bear some investigation, maybe. As, as uh, in your role of, uh, of president of the BC Humanist, do you feel that these tactics are coming to us from what the evangelical movement does down south in the States? Seems very similar, doesn't it? Well, that I know the Gideons came from the United States, and I know there's a lot of pressure coming from there, whether it's them coming, and I know Focus on the Family, I believe, mm-hmm. has put money into Canada, but in other cases, it may just be copying tactics that they see working. Like as a secularist here, I'm going to copy the secularist examples in the States that work very well. So I won't you know, say this is just the U.S. or people just stealing tactics from the U.S. or the U.S. putting its influence in. In some cases, it might be. But in some cases, we might be stealing the tactics of Freedom From Religion Foundation where they work well. Well, I'm, I'm, you guys, I know you'll correct me on this, but it occurs to me that in the States, the evangelical movement actively wants to take over the government and do away with democracy and put theocracy in its in its place. That's, that's their agenda. Uh, up here, I have the feeling that the Gideon Bible and the other religious materials is just because, going back to historically, we've always done it this way, that it helps the children, that it gives them a little boost if they don't, if their parents don't go to church, their parents are probably fallen away Christians, so we'll just help the children along, and maybe the children will go home and encourage the parents to come back to church. I don't think there's any agenda here for the people who are giving out the Bibles to actively take over the government or form a, another party to take it over. I think that may be a significant difference, but that that certainly is worth a, a discussion. You know, if you if you feel I'm off the track, well, let me know. It's interesting. I mean, the Gideons, I think, are very smart in their strategy. And Chilliwack, when I heard them speak at the school board there, they talked about they go where they're welcome. And if the Chilliwack school board said they wouldn't want them, then they would leave. And maybe that was just politicking to know that they don't want to look like they're forcing religion on the school because that would work against them. Or maybe they're genuine. I don't know. I want to believe the better about humans, even those I disagree with. Hmm. Uh, but in terms of religion and politics, in Canada, it's really interesting because you have the evangelicals in the Conservative Party and in a few of the other parties to lesser extents. But historically, there's actually a sort of like left-wing Christianity, like Tommy Douglas was a Christian, but he also was the one who brought forward socialized medicine in this country. So there's this sort of duality, and it's, shift, it's definitely shifted, I think, as a lot of the liberal churches have sort of declined, and the Protestant or the evangelical Protestants and evangelical or the right-wing Catholics have essentially grown stronger, or yeah. at least more dense, like all the liberals sort of left. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Maybe. But I, th- I think theories. in Ab- I think in Abbotsford for, for sure there's the the school board. I, I'm going to assume it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But I think they're just going to be incredulous that someone would 
would actually question, you know, the the fact that the Bibles are are going to be given out. So it's it's going to be it's going to be an, an interesting um, couple of months as you, you get underway. I have a bit of a hypothesis I want to throw out there, and you guys tell me what you if you think I'm bonkers or not. Um, it seems to me I I, I look at this uh, the spreading of their message a bit like a, a business model. Um, and let's take for example uh, when I was a kid, um, my my little brother was a big fan of um, wrestling, and I noticed that um, as we were watching wrestling and how real that was, <laughs> I noticed that when the economic uh, the the economy in the states was poor. Then all of a sudden, they had way more shows up here in Canada in arenas, right? And when the eco- economic times came back in the states, then they would leave. And I think we've seen the same thing here on the religious scale. You know, uh, in the the states is still the, the 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 big pie, and they all go there. But when when atheism is on the rise and all that, and they're losing their power, they're spreading around. They're going somewhere else because for them it's it's about membership, and this is where you see it coming across the border here. If if if, and you know, it's almost like they're interested in coming here, but are always hoping that they can go back to the states where the real meat is, right? I think your theory touches on like a really core truth, like, but I'm not sure if it's that. I think they've always sort of tried to test the waters in Canada because mm-hmm. it's just so close. Where I think it's actually even more true is in the developing world. Yes. So you're seeing them go to Uganda and to Africa and Absolutely. other countries and really try to push these anti uh, these anti LGBT policies, these sort of you know kill the gay type bills, which are just horrible. And you're seeing more blasphemy laws come up in Pakistan and places like that. And so the fundamentalism is pushing there. And even in the Catholic Church, it's divided between the sort of liberal speeches that Pope Francis is giving. You know, when he's in Washington, D.C. or in Europe, but then in South America, it, the language shifts a little. And it he, really does. To his credit, he talks more about helping the poor than some of the last guys, but he's still a Catholic pope. Yeah. I mean, even when I uh, did some interviews with some of our uh, previous guests, like Arn Raw and stuff like that, that's exactly what he. I would pose that question because we see it coming here, especially in Amherst. You see it coming across the border, and all of a sudden you, you have politicians that start saying god bless canada you know and you a lot of people don't catch it but i do right and and when you talk to these uh, these uh these atheists on the forefront in the states they say i get that question all the time from australians from whatever you know it's it's like the, the united states has become this kind of a hub and as atheism grows there they're displacing the believers and their their quest of getting or keeping their members, I should say, because I think they're bleeding members left, right, and center, and they're d- dispersing everywhere, and they're especially attracted to places like you said where education is low, because education is the key to fighting this mythology. Yeah. Mm. All right, everybody agrees with me. I'm such a genius. <laughs> so what? <laughs> what what's going to be step step one of um, dealing with the school board here? And then I've got another question, but I okay. want to... The first step is we're going to be writing to the superintendent of the school board in the next probably weeks, uh, asking and setting out very clearly the precedents that have been set. Like there's a human rights tribunal in Niagara Falls School District in Ontario that dealt specifically with a generic distribution of materials policy where they were using it to distribute the Gideon Bibles. And then an atheist came and said, well, can I distribute my atheist book that I got from some friends down south and they went nope and he sued them essentially in the human rights court and won because the school board clearly violated his equality that one 
was interesting because under the Ontario Human Rights uh, Act, they had to consider atheism a creed. Uh, BC's is written different, but I don't... Interesting. But that's just sort of a sidebar of yeah. how do you reconcile you know, atheism and humanism in human rights acts. And, but I think the Supreme Court of Canada is pretty clear, especially with the recent ruling about uh, council prayers, that atheism is protected under freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. So our first challenge will be to write to the superintendent because it's his authority to decide what gets distributed and what doesn't. And if we set out clearly the arguments, both legally and our sort of moral arguments that allowing any distribution biases in favor of some religions over others and some worldviews over others, that it, there's no case to continue it. And even though our final cop-out for them will be, well, let us distribute something of our own, we hope you'll just end the distribution and it'll be a quick win. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will warn you, uh, having dealt with some of the school uh, systems around here, they have this nasty tendency and uh, to the, the superintendent say, oh, that's the that's the, the, at the direction of the principals. And then if when you go to the principals, they say, no, no, we can't do anything without the superintendent. They're just you know, back and forth like that, hoping you give up. So, And I've dealt with that kind of issue before in a couple other campaigns I've worked on. And sometimes you just go to the guy at the top or the woman at the top and you say, all right, fix your ministers. Like when I was working in the UK on a specific campaign, we wrote to the prime minister because we said the Ministry of Justice has this doesn't want to deal with this issue and the Department of Health doesn't want to deal with this issue but it needs to be dealt with so you you sort out your people just go higher just go higher well there we go so we'll go to the uh, school board if we have to we'll go to the Minister of Education and we'll go to the courts if we have to that should be interesting yeah so if somebody wants to help in with this campaign at the BC Humanist is there somewhere they can reach or somewhere they can write to you to yeah they can you? definitely find more information at our website bchumanist.ca we'll be releasing a lot in the next couple of weeks perfect we're going to need people to help write letters we're going to need people to help uh, donate money if we end up having to distribute a lot of books to grade fives <laughs> I think it's very I think it's uh, Kevin you're you're right in asking that question because I think it's going to be I don't vital get that very often. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's vital that uh, people in Abbotsford, the parents in Abbotsford, get involved because I think the tendency is going to be for the school board and the principals to say, well, who's this guy coming in from Vancouver and suddenly telling us what to do? We've been here for 100 years, and we're going to be here for 100 years, and he's going to go back to Vancouver. So, you know, what what difference does it exactly. make? And and I think the the key is going to be for parents grandparents and relatives and anyone who um, values the secularism to, to write letters to contact us and to let the school board know that this is unacceptable. This is 2016. This is an issue, uh, a separate, even though we don't have total separation of church and state in, in Canada, but this is an issue for all of us to to get involved. Um, when you don't say anything, nothing changes. Well, it's like and, you were talking about on a few episodes last year, I think, about slacktivism, and you know what? It can help in exactly. this case. Even just a single email saying, I disapprove of yeah. the policy as it stands will mean something. Oh, Because yeah. what I've heard about politicians is every email or every letter they get is actually 10 
people who actually care about that because so few people write. It de- it depends actually on the level of government. Yeah, uh, I believe if I remember my uh, when it's uh, at the local level, it's two. When it's at provincial level, it's five. And when it's federal, it's twenty. I could be wrong, but that's what I heard. This might have been for the European Parliament. Oh, it could have been where it's ten or a hundred because no one writes to their European parliamentarians. But I could give into a whole other rant about that. I, uh, so, uh, Ian. So if <clears throat> if someone wants to help. How would they contact? How would they contact you um, to to write a letter or to say, "Yeah, I'm willing to help" or "I'm willing to give a donation to uh, to help pay for the books if they have to be distributed." What's the, what's the best way to get in touch? You can with find you? my email address, which is exdir exdir ex executive director at bchumanist.ca, and that'll be on our website and I assume in any show notes. And we'll put a link to. in the description of the show as well for the uh, BC Humanist page. But, you know, it's true, writing a letter or an email uh, to a uh, someone in government, it does work. And I actually suggest that you do it with an old-fashioned typewriter. And the reason for that is because there's like three left in the country and two of them are owned by serial killers. So they take you seriously. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, just <laughs> me being corny as usual. <laughs> Anything else we want for our friend Ian here? Yes, uh, I have a question. Um, so you became president of the BC Humanists in... So I am actually the executive director now. So okay. I moved to Vancouver in 2009. I got involved in the BC Humanists Association pretty short after that and got elected to the board and made it to president after a year or two. And around the time we were all volunteer run and we were deciding, realizing there's so much we could do and so much potential that we decided sort of as a board, we should hire someone. And I applied independently for that position and was hired and have worked at that. So I worked for a year from 2012 to 2013. And then I spent two years in the UK and I've been back in the role since August. Okay, and for our Vancouver listeners, if they would like to join you, um, actually we've got listeners in Maple Ridge and Surrey and all over the Lower Mainland. If someone wants to come and and uh, participate and have fun at one of your one of your meetings, where do they go and what time do they go? So our meetings are at the Oak Ridge Senior Center at ten a.m. on Sundays. We also have lots of other events, and we're trying to network more. We are the British Columbia Humanist Association, so we're trying to make sure we're networking humanists in Prince George and humanists mm-hmm. in Comox. Kamloops and all these places. Exactly. Yeah. And so if you get in touch with me, no matter where you are in BC or in the world, I will find you a neighbor who doesn't believe in God. <laughs> I'm not promising that. <laughs> so how does but that, I'll try. So how does that work then for extending to BC humanists uh, outside of Vancouver? So like in, you know, in, in the Fraser Valley, we have uh, you know, the Fraser Valley Atheist Skeptics and Humanists group, uh, which is not necessarily a chapter but you know, we most of us would support BC Humanists. So, would there be a goal with the BC Humanists to have chapters in different locations in the Kootenays and in the Interior? That's something we're looking at over the next year because we've tried an affiliate model in the past, and it's tough. And it's a really big province that we're not always getting out to. We're not in any way or shape or form going to try and come in and take over existing groups. I'd much rather work with people who are doing the stuff we agree on, like Fe Ash or people in Kamloops or Kelowna. But if there are humanists who want to get involved, we have a growing membership database, and I can find people and put them in touch. I don't share personal information without people's uh, permission, of course, but I, we have this database that we can start to network people and start to build groups wherever they are. Any truth to the rumor of CFI and BC humanists joining hands? That's a rumor? No. No? Uh, we work together. We're on good terms. 
what other, um, you know that we've talked about Abbotsford because we're local, uh, what other campaigns have you got planned and what other issues are you going to take on uh, this year? The other really big issue here locally in the Fraser Valley is, of course, the Trinity Western University Law School, oh, yes. uh, which I'm sure you've talked about lots already on the show. <laughs> Uh, as it stands right now, the BC Law Society has decided to appeal the Supreme Court of BC's decision to overturn their results and restore their original decision. Basically, what it means is the BC Law Society is going to the Court of Appeal to argue that they should not have to approve the law school at Trinity Western University, the Christian Evangelical Private School. We want to potentially intervene in the in that suit and make the argument that this is a school that doesn't just exclude same people with same-sex marriage and gay couples, but it effectively excludes atheists. And why should there be additional spots open for students who are straight Christians when there aren't those same opportunities open to the rest of us? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, just, uh, you do so- take on challenging issues, but that's what it is when you're a secularist. This is the world we have. We need to, exactly. you know, social justice is so important. Be- Equality is important. And, you know, we're one of the few groups. I say we, but the BC Humanist is one of the few groups that has no fear in taking any of these issues up and, so we'll be and taking, going forward. We'll be taking that on. We're hoping to submit. I was actually just this weekend working on our submission to the special joint Parliamentary Committee on Physician-Assisted Dying, because in the mm. fall we actually submitted uh, consultation responses to the external panel, the federal consultation on assisted dying, because there's so many religious groups saying, you can't do this, you can't do this. So we took the opposite approach. We said anyone who makes the free and informed decision to end their life should have that opportunity, and we can, and you can debate what those terms mean exactly, but we actually are response essentially comes down stronger than the Carter decision, and it says it, you, that it shouldn't be limited to someone with a remedial illness. If you make that decision, you shouldn't, like, suicide is legal in this country. Why should you have to take that into your own hands if you've chosen that way? Hmm. Interesting. And we even went another step further, and we said there shouldn't be conscientious objections. So a doctor who right now says, oh, I don't really want to do that. That's what they're trying to argue for. They really want to get out of doing their job. I'm not going to try and force a doctor to kill a patient, but what I want to make sure is there's at least a referral requirement in there because there's so many... And one thing you don't really realize is the Catholics and the religious actually still have a stranglehold on the Canadian healthcare system. There's a... Providence Healthcare runs a number of the hospitals and care homes in the Lower Mainland. St. Paul's Hospital in downtown Vancouver is a Catholic hospital, and it's 2016. That hospital wants the right to say, we don't want to perform physician-assisted dying here. We don't want to perform abortions here. It's pretty but scary. It is, but this is a publicly funded hospital. It is, it is. They right. shouldn't have that opt-out. So we're trying to make that as strong as possible. We might not get everything we ask for, but we're hoping we can at least shift the debate away from this sort of fringe. Because if you look at the polls, it really is just a fringe. Even, in the Catholic, even if you ask just Catholics, do they support physician-assisted dying, 80% of them still do. Like, it's just a narrow fringe, and it's the leadership. Yeah, so it's a very vocal minority. Yeah. yeah. So I'm hoping to submit that evidence in the next week. We've also made a submission to appear before the committee. We'll see if I get invited to fly to Ottawa and present before parliamentarians for 10 minutes, which will be, <laughs> which will be fun and stressful. Yes. But well, you will see a lot about that if I get to. Well, now that they've actually legalized that in, uh, in Quebec, right? Yeah, so Quebec passed a law. The Supreme Court of Canada 
granted the government's request for an extension but gave them four months. So basically by June, there has to be a, a change to the federal law or it's just decriminalized and we can each province can do what they want. But the Supreme Court decided Quebec could be opted out of that and they can go ahead with their law because Quebec has taken the time. Quebec alone, out of all the provinces, has held this debate over the last few years publicly, had the consultations and come to a consensus as a province about where they want to go. And so they shouldn't be punished for that. No, totally agree. Totally agree. Compare that to our own province where nothing is happening. There was an interprovincial discussion uh, led by Ontario on physician-assisted dying. And BC had observer status, which I don't know exactly what means, but we were unique in being the only one with observer rather than participant status. And meanwhile, uh, and the most egregious uh, concern, the health committee in BC brought together uh, a recommendation on physician-assisted dying after their own consultation, and they said it should be made part of the continuum of care, which means it should be a core part of the healthcare system. So when you're in a care home, you have that option. It's not forced upon you, obviously, and it's just available, and you should be made, and it should, access should be guaranteed. And so the health committee recommended this, which is a health committee made up of mostly BC Liberals and a few BC NDP members. It made it to the floor of the BC legislature, and it got killed by apparently the conservative evangelicals within the BC Liberal caucus. Really? Huh? Yeah. So that's, Including probably the premier. She's. Uh... Well, I won't name names. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That said, the BC Human Association is a nonpartisan organization. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, was Ian Bushfield. Thank you, Ian. Thank you so much for being here, Ian. And you're welcome back anytime you want. You got friends here at the left of the valley, and now you have a T-shirt to prove it. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, we should we should keep tabs on the death and dying story since it's ongoing. And if you go to Ottawa, we can be updated because it, it is an important, in, at your age, perhaps it's not as important. <laughs> it is as important as an issue, but it, as you get older, it becomes more personal. And so it would be a good thing to mm-hmm. uh, Well, and everyone knows someone who gets into a situation of suffering and they should have options available. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. You wanted to make a point there, buddy? No, I just wanted to ask one last question. Oh, by all means. Are you wearing Big Bang Theory socks? I am wearing Einstein socks. Oh. oh. It's been bugging me the whole program. I've been looking at your feet, just so you know. And yeah, I thought they no, were Big No, he doesn't Bang have theory. a foot fetish. He just... <laughs> They're cool socks. Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, that takes us to the end of our show. Uh, our next show, we have Jeff D. from the nonprofit, and we'll try to do something about romance scams. We also have uh, atheist rapper Baba Brinkman. We have an interview with him. That should be pretty cool. He actually uses hip-hop and rap and uh, to actually promote uh, issues. Uh, we'll be talking to our, friends, our friend Peter Bogosian eventually down the road. We also have somebody from CFI that's supposed to come in, and we'll be doing a show on the science of magic. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. Until next time, take care.